1 Corinthians chapter 3, continuing in our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But each, let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this passage. I pray you give wisdom now. Speak to us. I pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, for forgiveness of anything that might hinder my effectiveness today. I pray, Lord, you would just help me to say those things that need to be said. Keep me from saying anything I ought not. And just uh, just be our teacher, we pray. Help us, Father, to learn from this passage. It's your word. Uh, I pray we'd uh, respect it as such and learn from it as such today. In Jesus' name, amen. Normally, normally, I preach 30 to 35 minutes, something like that, sometimes a little bit longer. Uh, some of you may think that's absolute bunk. Some of you may be sitting there saying right now, oh, I, I don't think so. I know you drone on a lot longer than that. But the fact is, for quite some time now, we have been recording the sermons, and they're up on the, uh, they're online, available for anybody to see, and the time is right there. And so it keeps me honest. 30, 35, maybe 40 minutes. You know, some pastors would preach shorter sermons than that, and some would preach longer sermons than that. I tend to think the Apostle Paul might have been in the latter category. You remember what happened in Acts chapter 20? 
Flip over there with me to Acts chapter 20. I think this is one of the funnier things that ever occurred in the Bible. You know, the Bible has a lot of humor in it, you know. There's some hilarious things take place in the Bible. This is one of them. Acts chapter 20, we have an example of the Apostle Paul's preaching. I don't think it was 30 or 35 minutes. Acts chapter 20, uh, once you get there, look down at verse number 7. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. That was more than 30 or 35 minutes. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. I just think that's a hilarious story. And of course, we know that the Apostle Paul healed him, and he was he was restored to life and all that kind of stuff. But obviously, Paul was a long-winded preacher. Would you not say that is true? Well, you know, we are on our fifth message now in the book of 1 Corinthians. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we're still on the same topic. We're, on, we're listening to the same message from the Apostle Paul that we've been listening to since chapter 1. And we're only in chapter 3, and we still got chapter 4 before we get done with this particular topic. And that is the topic of division in the church. He has continued going on uh, with this same thought through this whole long part of the book. Four chapters. Now, I confess I had read 1 Corinthians many times. I try to read through the Bible at least once a year. Uh, I have not done that every year of my life, but I have, I've tried. And I've read through 1 Corinthians many times. And I've always noticed that he starts off with division. But until I actually went through the process of trying to create sermons on this, I never really realized just how long this drones on. I never really noticed how much time he spends on this particular topic. Now, we could laugh it off. And we could say, well, he's a long-winded preacher. He's been known to preach people to death. We could say that. We could zone out and wait for him to come on to some other topic, which is what a lot of people do when they're listening to preaching that they don't particularly care for. And we could just kind of maybe uh, you know, holler at him and say, Paul, okay, we're, we're, we're up on this now. We've got this. We know what you think about division. Move on. Move on. We could do that. But I would suggest to you this morning that that would be a mistake. Because there's got to be some reason that the Apostle Paul has chosen to spend so much time on this particular topic. He had a lot of things he wanted to talk about and a lot of things he needed to address with this church. We've mentioned before that the, the book of 1 Corinthians is basically two things. It's the Apostle Paul addressing problems that he had heard about in the church, issues that he had been informed of. This is one of them. It has been declared to me that there are divisions among you. That's what he's talking about here. So he's addressing issues, uh, and there is more than just this one. There are many. He's also answering a bunch of questions when we get over to, I think it's chapter 7. I think chapter 7 is where it begins with, uh, Now concerning the things where have you wrote me? They had apparently written him a letter with a whole big long list of questions. And that's what this book is. From beginning to end, him dealing with difficulties and him answering their questions. And for some reason, he has chosen this particular one to start with. And when we get through this, this list of things, when we get to chapter 5 and see what's going on in this church, we're going to see there were some very serious problems going on there. But this is the one he chooses to spend all this time on. This is the one he chooses to start with. And so I, I'm forced to conclude that he considered this the most pressing issue and the thing that needed to be dealt with first. And I think it gives us an indication of just how serious a matter division in a local church is. So I hope we don't grow weary with this. We have one more chapter 
Uh, we'll probably be another couple of weeks before we get through chapter 4. Uh, please don't grow weary with it. Try to remember the Holy Spirit had some reason for putting this much uh, material in the Word of God about this topic. Well, he's continuing now in chapter 3, and it is indeed the same topic. It's basically, he's talking about division in the local church. He's still dealing with the fact that there were some who favored him, some who favored Apollo, some who favored Peter uh, in the local church. They had their, their little cliques. They had their little favorite celebrity preachers. And so he's talking about that same basic thing. But here in chapter 3, I think there's a couple of things that, 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 uh, that will help us, a couple of things that we need to take note of that he talks about here. And I would suggest to you that we can kind of guide our thoughts by using a word. And that word this morning is misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. I think, I think what Paul is saying here, and I have labored over this this week. I've really struggled with this chapter. But I think what he's saying here is, you goofy Corinthians, here's why you're, here's why you're messed up. You're messed up because you misunderstand. There's division amongst you because you have some misunderstandings. And he mentions three, I think, specifically. You might see some others in there. But I think he says, you have a misunderstanding about spirituality. We'll see that in the first part. And I think he says also, you have a misunderstanding about leaders. We'll see that in the middle. And then he says, you also have a misunderstanding about the consequences of this. And we'll, we might not get to that one today. We'll probably save that one for next time. But misunderstanding spirituality, leaders, consequences. Notice, first of all, the first four verses. And I would suggest to you that there, Paul is saying in those first four verses, you have a misunderstanding about spirituality. You know, the implication from those first four verses, if you look at them there, is that the Corinthians thought themselves to be spiritual. Especially, I suppose, those who were clamoring for the deeper truths that were being taught by Apollos. They no doubt thought themselves to be the more spiritual group. Perhaps more so than the ones who liked Paul's simple gospel message, I don't know. But the implication, do you see that there? The implication is they thought themselves to be spiritual people. But Paul starts right off slamming them to the ground. And Paul starts right off with, 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 uh, with, with knocking that thought right out from under him. He says, you might have thought yourselves to be spiritual, but that's not the way I recall it. Isn't that what he's saying in verse number one? And most of them would have probably said, well, yeah, you're right, because when you first came into town, Paul, you know, we, were, we weren't even saved, and, and then we were new believers, and that, that's what you're talking about. And yeah, back then, yeah, we weren't very spiritual then. But he says, but I'm not done yet. He says, even now, you're not spiritual. That probably would have knocked the wind out of their sails, don't you think? Because they thought they were. They thought that they had progressed. They thought themselves to be spiritual. And he says, no, you weren't and you aren't. He says, I couldn't give you deep truths because you weren't ready for it. And even now, you're not ready. The interesting thing is, Paul says here that the very division that he's been hammering on this whole time, the very division is the very thing that marked them as carnal. Notice verse number four. It says, when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are you not carnal? And so apparently with this emphasis that they had on celebrity preachers, personalities, it might have made them sound spiritual in their own mind, but he said that very thing that you think is making you spiritual is the very thing that is the exact opposite. It's demonstrating that you're carnal. It's funny, isn't it? Spirituality is kind of like humility. Have you ever noticed that? The moment you think you got it, gone. Have you ever noticed? That's kind of what he's saying here. Well, my mind goes to a couple of different things as I think about that particular topic right there. 
One thought that my mind goes, go, goes to is that we are never out of danger of falling prey to the devil's traps. Here was a group of people who thought they had arrived. Here was a group of people who thought they'd a level, reached a, level, uh, a certain level of attainment, of, of, of spiritual attainment, and yet they still were falling prey to the devil's strategy. Derek Prime in his book, opening up 1 Corinthians, said, Part of the devil's strategy is to encourage us to make a bad thing of something good. And he achieves a great deal of success in this if we're not careful and watchful. Isn't that what he was doing right here? Isn't that what he was doing? Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We are never out of the danger of falling into his traps. Paul will say to the Corinthians in his next letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, he'll say, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And so the first thought that comes to my mind is, is we need to guard against that. We are never away from the danger of Satan's temptations in our life. And now I, we, we preached a whole message on the doctrine of Satan here not very long ago, and uh, this may be review, I don't know. But the fact is we ought not to be afraid because of that. I don't say that to make us afraid. There is no reason to fear Satan. Satan is a defeated and pitiful and miserable foe. And one of these days, we are going to watch with joy as he is cast into the lake of fire. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. It's going to be, that's going to be a good day. So we don't need to fear him. We don't need to fear him. My Bible tells me if we resist him, he will flee. That's what James chapter 4 and verse 7 says. It doesn't sound like somebody we ought to fear running away from us. Uh, my Bible tells me in 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 4, the greater is he that is in you, that's my Jesus, than he that is in the world, that's Satan. Greater is he. We don't need to fear him. But I do think that, that, that what this tells us is we ought to be vigilant. We ought to be, that's what Peter said. He didn't say be afraid of him. He said be sober, be vigilant, be careful, be careful. Uh, I, I do think that these things ought to keep us humble and help us to avoid becoming cocky like these Corinthians had become. And I think it also ought to keep us on our knees. The devil, the devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And so that's one thought that comes to my mind. But another one is this. Sanctification is a process. Sanctification is a process. They misunderstood spirituality. And I think this is maybe the main thing they misunderstood. Sanctification is a process. And we're not there yet. Anybody think we're there yet? Anybody think you've arrived spiritually? Process is not complete in any of us. The Apostle Paul here was saying it was not complete in him. We're all works in process, and we will be until the day Jesus comes. Joel Hemphill wrote a little children's song that we sing all the time. He's still working on me. You know that song? To make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. And isn't that the truth? That's sanctification. Now, we've talked about something before that I want to review here a little bit because it speaks to this. And that is the threefold nature of our salvation. You guys remember me talking about this before, how our salvation really has three different aspects to it. Very important, very important that we understand this. And, and it can be described in three words. Penalty, power, presence. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and I'll show you a couple of verses that explain this. Penalty, power, and presence. Three different aspects of our salvation. What did I say? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Doesn't seem to be in my Bible. Oh, there it is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Notice verse number 2. Paul said, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, 
and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, our Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Notice in verse number two, actually in verse number three there, the three different aspects he mentions to their salvation. He, he describes it as their work of faith. That took place in the past. He talks about, he describes it as their labor of love. That's what's going on right now. And their patience of hope. That's what they're looking forward to. Three different aspects to our salvation. We are saved from the penalty of our sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we will be saved eventually from the very presence of sin. One more passage. Look over at Titus chapter 2. Just a couple of books further on. We come to the Timothys and then Titus. Titus chapter 2. And I think this is even clearer. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. You see, the, you see all three tenses there? You see how we were saved in the past, we're being saved in the, in, the, in the now, and we will be saved in the future. We have been saved from the penalty, we, we are being saved from the power of sin, and we will be saved from the presence of sin. You know, when you trusted Christ, you were immediately and forever saved from the penalty of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Do you know that you will never, ever, ever have to pay the penalty for your sin because that was taken care of on the cross? Done! Past tense! You have already been saved from the penalty of sin. Jesus took upon himself the penalty for your sins on the cross so you never have to do it again. And because of that, we can say, we can say that we've been saved from the penalty of sin. When you trusted Christ, you also received the promise that one day you would be saved from the power of, or the very presence of sin. Can you imagine when we get to heaven and there simply is no sin? Can you imagine that? I can't fathom what that is. Can you imagine no wicked thoughts? No temptation? Nothing. Sin and everything about it that we know is gone. That's future. That's salvation from the very presence of sin, which we'll see when we get to glory. But the part that's important to us here today, and the part that I think he was saying they misunderstood in the Corinthian church, was this part about when you trusted Christ, you began this lifelong journey of being saved from the power of sin. That's that word that we use all the time, that theological word, sanctification. It's a process that begins the minute we trust Christ, and it continues until we stand in his presence. It's the process whereby we are progressively becoming more like him. We certainly ought to be. It's the process whereby we are gaining deliverance from the power of sin in our life. We certainly ought to be. And it's a process that doesn't end until we get to glory. Sanctification. So here's, here's the point, and here's what I think he's saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, so don't get cocky, because you haven't arrived there yet. And that part is not done yet. And no matter how spiritual you guys might think you are, you're not there yet. And you're still just as much a sinner and still struggling just as much as the rest of us are. We have a, a men's Bible study, Brother Don leads on Tuesday evenings. A few weeks ago, we had a conversation in that men's Bible study, and it was about eternal security. Remember that conversation, Brother Don? And I was sharing in that Bible study about a conversation I had had with a friend of mine who does not believe in eternal security. Now, if you're visiting with us today, we do. The Bible very clearly, I believe, teaches that once you're saved, you can never lose that salvation. And so that's, that's what we believe as a church. That's certainly what I believe. 
But I was relaying a story of, uh, of me having a conversation with somebody who doesn't believe that. And this person had said to me, so what you're saying is, uh, you know, no matter what happens, if I have trusted Christ, I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And I said, yes, sir. And he says, well, what happens if the very last thing I ever do is a sin? And my response to him, which, uh, which I relayed to the Bible study, and it, it elicited some interesting conversation, was, it will be. And I, I think it will be. The very last thing you do is going to be a sin because everything we do in this flesh is a sin. Well, that particular night, our, our newest missionary, we just recently took on the Harmons as, as missionaries supporting their, their work in Puerto Rico. And Jerry was still with us at the time, and he was sitting in that Bible study. And he said, well, I don't agree with that. And I said, why not? And he says, well, you know, I'd like to think that if the very last thing I ever do is win somebody to Christ, that would not be a sin. What if I win somebody to Christ and drop dead? That's cool. I'd like to think that too. But you see, I know myself. I know that I've never won somebody to Christ at a single time in my life that there wasn't some disgusting, proud thought that intruded on the situation. I know that I have never preached a sermon to you at one time without some self-congratulation somewhere in me. I know myself. I know that I am a sinner. And I know that it never goes away. And I know that you're exactly the same way. The last thing we are going to do is going to be sinful because everything we do is sinful until we get to that glorious day when the, this, this process is over and we are delivered from the very presence of sin. I don't know if that doesn't make you shout. I don't know. I don't know what possibly can. What, what do you think Isaiah meant when he said all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags? I quote that verse to you all the time. Listen to what he's saying. The best thing we could ever do is dirt. What do you think he means by that? He means that in this life, in this life, we'll never be perfect. It's a process. What do you think David meant in Psalm 51 when he said, my sin is ever before me? What do you think Paul meant in Romans chapter 7 and verse 14? He said, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul, great Christian Paul, said, I'm not perfect. I haven't got there. What do you think he meant in a few verses later in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18? I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So it's a process, and we haven't arrived. And when we think about this, when we think about how needy we are, we think about how helpless we are, we think about how even at our very best we're completely undone. Isn't that, isn't that what we are? Completely undone. How do we not thank God for his goodness and his grace that takes care of all that for us? How do we not thank him? How do we not? <coughs> This morning we sang that hymn, Oh to Grace, How Great a Debtor, Daily I'm Constrained to Be. I think it's one of the greatest verses ever been written in any hymn. How do we not thank the Lord for that grace? Grace, grace, God's grace, greater than all my sin. Well, Paul was saying here, I think, I think one of the things he was saying was that the division within the church at Corinth demonstrated a misunderstanding of spirituality. I think they had a failure to recognize that their very preoccupation with that, their very belief that because of where they were in their Christian walk, they had somehow attained a level of spirituality, that very thought in their mind, he said, you have completely got it backwards. And that very thought has meant you're not there yet. You're still carnal. You're living like the world. Another misunderstanding, he said. They misunderstood spirituality. Secondly, look at verses 5 through 9. I think they also misunderstood leaders. How long did I say I preach? <laughs> Leaders. Verses 5 through 9. 
Notice what he says here. He says, who is Paul anyway? Who is Apollos? Now that must have sounded like an odd question, don't you think? As they were reading his letter, well, wait a minute now, don't you know who they are? Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? I think what he's pointing out with those very questions is a basic fundamental misunderstanding about leaders in the church. I think he was pointing out, you guys just don't understand what we're about. You don't understand what I'm about, as Paul, Paul was saying. I don't think you understand what Apollos is about. You don't understand leadership in the local church. We talk about leadership a lot here. Ever since we uh, reorganized this church and uh, uh, started Friendship Bible Church, we've been struggling toward and working toward and praying toward having elder-led form of church government here. Plurality of leadership, which we believe is what the Bible teaches we took a big step forward in that with the appointment of Phil Ross here not very long ago uh, to our pastoral team. But we're still working on it. We're still praying about it. We still try different things. By the way, a shameless plug. I don't know if you've noticed or not in your bulletin, but we have a new thing that we're offering along that line, the Leadership Trading Institute. Make sure you look at that. And if that's something that interests you, make sure you see Phil. He's kind of heading that up. So we talk about leadership a lot. We try different things to try to help people to equip people to be leaders. But in spite of all that, and now that I've said all that, I have to also say that I think sometimes we overuse the word leader completely. Sometimes I think we misuse it. I know it's biblical. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the fact that there are those who have the rule over you. That's leadership. I know that. Peter said that uh, elders are to take the oversight of the church. That's leadership. I understand that. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 8, where it's talking about spiritual gifts, says, He who leads, let him do it with diligence. <laughs> so it's biblical, I know that. But I think we overuse it. I think we misunderstand it sometimes. I think we misunderstand the nature of it. And I think that's what Paul is saying right here. And I think this section helps to give some perspective on that. Look at how Paul describes himself here. Look at how he describes Apollos. He says in verse number 5 that they are ministers. He says in verses 5 and 6 that they each had an assigned task given to them by God. He says in verse number 8 that his work and Apollos' work are equal, one, with neither one being more important than the other. He says plainly in verse number 7 that he and Apollos were nothing. Now that's an amazing statement, don't you think? Apostle Paul is one of the greatest men that has ever walked on the face of this earth. I, I, don't know, I don't know who would ever say differently. Even people who are not believers would have to say that of men who have ever walked on the face of this earth, how many have, the, have had the influence and the, the effect on the rest of the world that the Apostle Paul had, and yet he thought of himself here as nothing. I am nothing, and neither is Apollos. That ought to sink into our minds for a minute. That ought to sink into our minds. Every bit of his description there in those verses oozes humility, leans away from what we think of in terms of leaders. These men were servants first. That word minister there is the word diakonos, from which we get deacon. It means table waiter, servant. Paul said, I am just a table waiter. Apollos is just a table waiter. Jesus said one time, he who is greatest among you, shall be your servant, Matthew chapter 23. And those who are called to lead in the local church are called to such a life of slavery and service. That's what Paul thought. That's what Paul taught. And those who are called to lead in the local church ought to feel like Paul did here. I am not anything. It's all about God. 
Isn't that what he said? Isn't that what he said? Well, several things he hammers out here, and I want to just share a few thoughts from this, and I will be done here in just a few minutes. Several different things as he develops this thought that he, he says. He says, first of all, God uses people in his plan to reach the world, but God and God alone gives the increase. Did you see that in there? I planted, Apollos watered. None of that was anything. God is the one who gave the increase. Now, I don't know about you, but as someone who, is, who, who believes that God has called him to preach the word of God, that lifts a huge weight off of me. And anybody who has any kind of a ministry in, in a local church, that ought to lift a huge weight off of you. It ought to lift a huge weight off of anybody who wants to witness to their family or just be a good testimony in their workplace. It ought to lift a huge weight because what, what they're saying right there is, uh, you're not responsible for the success or failure of this thing. You're just responsible to do your part. Do the task that has been assigned to you. God is the one who makes it grow. God is the one who has the results. Leave that to God. You know, there's a movie that I, I watch every once in a while. It's a Disney movie. I, I like it. It's called Miracle. I like it because it describes a uh, event that I remember <coughs> with great fondness. That was the, uh, the gold medal performance of the 1980 Olympic hockey team. I still remember to this day sitting in my living room and shouting at my television screen, well, that was going on. It was a great day. But in this movie, there is a particular line that always speaks to my heart. The coach of the American hockey team uh, in this movie is upset with his captain, who is upset with the performance of another player. And the coach says to him, you worry about your own game. There's more than enough there to keep you busy. And, you know, that's what I think we're getting out of this here. All we got to do is worry about our own game. Because that's all God expects of us. He doesn't ask us to succeed. He asks us to be faithful. Isn't that glorious? It just, it just helps me so. And it ought to help us all. God uses people in his plan to reach the world. But God and God alone gives the increase. He alone makes things grow. That's verses 6 through 7. Another thought that I think Paul develops for us here is this. God uses people in his plan. And each has an assigned task to do. Somebody had to plant. That was Paul's job. Somebody had to plant seed. It was Paul's job. Somebody had to water it. That was Apollo's job. Both were important. Neither was less important, neither was more important. Both of them had an assigned task to do, and all they were responsible to do was to do that particular task. Isn't it interesting that in all this discussion of division, all this discussion of how these Corinthians are pitting some like Paul better and some like the Paulus better. In all of that discussion, there's never a single moment where Paul ever seems to be the slightest bit jealous of Apollos. Have you ever noticed that? Never once does he say, no, wait a minute now, my part was a little bit more important than Apollos. He doesn't do that. He, he seems to have not the slightest concern. The devil wanted to pit those two servants against each other, but Paul was not going to have any of that. He knew exactly what was going on there. Derek Prime, in his book, opening up 1 Corinthians, said, Paul did not regard Apollos as a rival because he knew that both he and Apollos were only servants, a title in which he delighted, by the way. Paul saw service as a privilege, part of God's grace to him, and the necessity for both planting and watering, in verse number 6, emphasizes that Christian service involves partnership, not rivalry. We're going to see a lot more of this as we move on into the book of 1 Corinthians, especially when we get to chapter 12, when he talks a lot about spiritual gifts. Uh, we'll, we'll see it a lot more. But for now, let's just see that he's driving a stake in the ground. God uses people, and he gives them an assigned task to do. And all he asks 
is that they do that particular task. One last thought, and we'll be done. God uses people in his plan, and they are gifts to each of us. They are gifts. Look at verses 5 through 10. And count how many times the concept of God giving appears there. Notice verse number 5 says the Lord gave. Verse number 6 says God gave the increase. Verse number 7 says God who gives the increase. Verse number 10 says the grace of God which was given to me. And especially in verse number 5, I think we see the idea here that not only did God give the gift to the servant, but God also gave the servant to the church. And that's a concept we see in Ephesians chapter 4, do we not? Uh, where, where it talks about God gave various servants to the church. And so, God uses people in his plan and their gifts. Now I know, I know, I'm certainly aware of the fact that not everybody who strides into this pulpit feels like a gift. You probably have no trouble looking at me and thinking I'm a gift. That's supposed to be funny. But I'm sure there's others that you would look at and say, that person, I don't necessarily agree with everything they have to say. Or maybe they don't tickle your fancy quite as much as you would like. And the thing is, we have to remember, God gave them. That's a hard thing to remember sometimes. God gave them. When I listen to other preachers preach, I try really, really hard to listen to every word they say. And in the words of another preacher friend of mine, I try to bore a hole in them as they're speaking. I try to block out everything else around me. I want to hear what they have to say because I don't believe I'm listening to them. I believe I'm listening to what God has for me that particular day. And most of the time, most of the time, that works out pretty good. I was talking to a friend one time, a preacher friend one time, and he says, you know, uh, I, I, have, uh, I have managed to get something out of every sermon I have ever heard. I've had a few close calls, though. <laughs> and we all feel like that, don't we? A few close calls. The fact is, it's a gift. It's a gift. But you know, this passage is not just about preachers. This passage is about servants. And so it goes beyond preachers. And servants in the church come in all flavors. And here's the thing. Every single one of them is a gift from a loving God to his church. Every single one of them is a gift from a loving God to you and me. Every servant. Every Sunday school teacher. Every Bible study leader. Every deacon. Every deaconess. Every single one. Now as our church grows, and we pray it continues to grow. After all, isn't that the whole point of this? It's talking about God making the church grow. As our church grows, is it not true? that we're probably going to have a little bit more and more interpersonal conflict. Don't you think that's likely? We have more personalities. We have more people. We have more, uh, you know, that kind of stuff going on. I think we have a little of that going on now. We haven't had too much of it in the last five years, but every once in a while, I think we see the devil peek his head out a little bit and some of that goes on. You know what? Here's something will help you if you happen to experience a little of that in our church. You know what will help you? Just remember this. They're a gift. Their gift. You mean that person that I would like to slap upside of the face? Their gift. Their gift. That person that drives me crazy. That person that I disagree with. Everything they have to say. Their gift. From God to you to help you grow. Isn't that what it says? That's what it says. So my Bible says. I don't know what Bible you're holding, but that's what mine says. In our men's ministries, we're prone to quoting from Proverbs chapter 27, verse number 17. It says, iron sharpeneth iron. Isn't that a great verse? How does that work? How does iron sharpen iron? Well, if you're the piece of iron, 
it's probably not a very pleasant experience. It's probably kind of a harsh experience. It's probably kind of a grinding experience. Because it's hard. I once spoke to a man who was telling me about a situation in his in his Christian walk and a struggle that he was having with a person. And I knew he'd had some trouble with him for a long time, for, with this person for a long time, and so I asked how it was going, and he said, well, you know, that's going okay now. I think I've got the victory over that. He said, I came to realize one day that, or I came to determine that God had put that person in my life as sandpaper. I have some rough edges. And that person was just given by God to sand them off. What a mature thought. What a great thought. That's a glorious thing. And that's exactly what I think is being said here. Now, by the way, I have to throw out a little caveat here. He was mature for saying that. He was mature for seeing that other people sometimes function as sandpaper in his life. But if you're the one who is the sandpaper... That's not a gift. (laughs) That's a sin. And you need to repent of that. There is no such thing as the gift of causing friction in other people's lives. That's not there. So repent of it if that's you. But you get the picture, don't you? God's servants are gifts. Gifts to us. And they help us to grow. So I think Paul was saying to these Corinthians, the reason we're still talking about division three chapters into this letter is because you have some misunderstandings. Number one, you're misunderstanding spirituality. Number two, you're misunderstanding leadership in the church. Number three, you're misunderstanding consequences. And I'm not going to talk about this. I'll save this for next time. But I just want you to be thinking about this in advance. Maybe this week you might want to look at verses 9 through 17 because this is, a, this is an interesting passage. I think he's saying here you're misunderstanding some consequences. Ask yourself... What did Paul mean when he said in verse number 10, let each one take heed how he builds? What do you mean by that? Ask yourself, what did he mean when he said in verse number 13, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. What did he mean when he said the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is? What did he mean in verse 14 when he said if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss? Or if anyone's work endures, he will receive a reward. What did he mean in verse number 17 when he said, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Thought-provoking questions. Think about them this week and come prepared to think about them next week. I think what he was saying is you misunderstand the consequences of all of this. Well, I'm done. And I'll just conclude by saying one thing. I try to organize my sermons around a theme and the theme that I think speaks to what we're talking about here today is this. The Corinthians needed a clear understanding of true spirituality, of the nature of leadership in a church, and the coming judgment seat of Christ, which we're saving for next week. That was their challenge. And I believe it is also ours. I believe it is ours.